Welcome to Accidental Gods, to the podcast where we believe that another world is still possible and that together we can make it happen. I'm Manda Scott and I spent the first series of this podcast laying out the basic toolkit that we think is essential to making conscious evolution a possibility, which is the entire premise behind the whole Accidental Gods project, this podcast, the website, and the membership program that lies behind it. Since then, we've been exploring the extraordinary, lively, inspiring intersection where art meets activism, politics meets philosophy, and science meets spirituality, from which we can craft a vision of a future that is generative for us all, for the human and the more-than-human worlds. My guest this week is friend of the podcast, Jill Coombs, returning for the third time. Jill is an activist a coach, a facilitator, and a writer. And we're returning now because her third book, The Trembling Warrior, A Guide for Reluctant Activists, has just been published. This whole concept feels to me like one of the most important of our time, that each of us is called to act in some way towards the flourishing of the planet. And heeding that call can be terrifying, but is ultimately an authentic expression of who we are so that acting on it can lead to the soul healing that arises only when we are expressing the full authenticity of ourselves. I taught a shamanic dreaming workshop this weekend, and I was so struck by the change in the kinds of questions that people are bringing now. Twenty years ago, broadly, we were all asking how better to fit into the system. And now, people are asking how to step out of it, how to change it, how to make total systemic change. And that is the act of a spiritual warrior. So, people of the podcast, please welcome back Jill Coombs. So, Jill Coombs, down there in rainy Gloucestershire, welcome back to the Accidental Gods podcast for the third time. This is a record. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. So today we're going to be talking about your newly published book. Yay. We are right on the edge of the curve here. Trembling Warrior, which was what first brought me to you many moons ago. Somebody sent me an email and said, you have to interview Jill Coombs. She's got this book called Trembling Warrior, and it's a must for anyone who wants to be part of changing the world in any way, which is what Accidental Gods is about. And you've rewritten it since then. So. I'd like to encourage everybody to go and read it. But before they do, let's have a look at how you came to be a trembling warrior before you even began to write the book. And what does that mean for you? Well, a trembling warrior for me is a combination of feeling tender, feeling sensitive, a little bit nervous or apprehensive, timid, introvert, all of those words which suggest some sensitivity, uh, combined with a really strong flaming passion about all the injustices that are happening in the world and a, a really strong desire to do something to bring yourself into 
action in response to whatever it is you see that you love being threatened. And so for me, and I think for many others, these two energies can often bring up an inner conflict or an inner tension between the part of us that wants to keep our tender little selves safe and protected and the other part that really wants to get out there and speak truth to power and address the injustices that we're we're seeing, especially at the moment. Yeah. And this this concept of pushing one's own boundaries, I think, So I'm thinking also that the adjective trembling, it's about our our fear and our finding where our edges are and probably playing a little with those because even people who don't consider themselves to be introverts or apprehensive are still going to have a point beyond which what they're doing is frightening. And what I really took away from the trembling warrior is that everybody's thresholds are different some of them wildly different. There, is, there are actions that you mention in the book that are so far beyond my threshold that I, I would struggle to contemplate them. And yet, people do them. And so we all have boundaries. And I am thinking that part of being, stepping into this sense of being a trembling warrior, is finding where our boundaries are and, and bridging them, staying sometimes on the safe side and sometimes on the, on the scary side. Does that sound fair? Absolutely. It. Yeah. Something about playing our edge. You know, I was watching the seven boar yes. coming up the river yesterday oh, and yes. uh, noticing this edge and thinking this is what it's all about is uh, not taking ourselves into a, a panic zone and something that is just way off our radar. But what's the, what's the step that we can take, whether we are? introvert or extrovert or whatever it is that is is holding us back, what might it be like to just take that extra step and have the courage to expand a little into something new? Yes. And so in your own life, as I understand it, you were an activist, for which we will now transpose Trembling Warrior, from quite young. What What were your first activist experiences, do you think? I remember in my early 20s discovering how farm animals are intensively farmed. And I just hadn't known this before. I kind of vaguely known about factory farms, but not really thought much beyond it as an abstract term. And I remember a Sunday Times magazine uh, uh, with a picture of a chicken in its actual living space on the front cover. And that horrified me. I remember that one. You do? Ah. Yeah, yeah, because that, that was it. The front cover of the... Your Sunday Times magazine was the amount of space that chicken had. Was and the headline was uh, and that was legal. Uh, yeah, and it was legal. And the headline was "Cherish the Rat, Curry the Canary," <laughs> which kind of subverted the value judgments we make around different animals and how we treat them. So I read the article, found out about factory farming, and I think meanwhile I'd also found out about climate change at roughly the same time. Uh, got involved mm. in Friends of the Earth and through that met some people who were uh, going on a protest march about exporting live, you know, live calves right. oh, overseas yeah. in, in dreadful conditions. So that was the first march I went on and that went on and that was my first experience of, uh, of activism. And was it scary? Yes, it was and in ways I hadn't expected. So we marched to the MP's house in Wiltshire And that was fine. We stood outside. And then there was a faction who began to chant 
uh, your head on a plate and Oops. and suggesting to each other, let's go and shed in his garden. And uh, suddenly I had this feeling that this wasn't something I really wanted to be involved with. You know, I wanted to stop live animal exports, but I didn't want to, I wasn't calling for aggression or violence because that was the very thing that we were seeking to stop. Yes. And so I discovered afterwards, walking back and talking with others that uh, around that time, and I don't know if it's quite so true now, that there was a group of people who would turn up for all sorts of protests and marches just because they wanted to uh, kick back against authority or get involved mm. in uh, some opportunity to express their anger and aggression. And I think they probably were angry about something, but I don't think they were particularly angry about live calf exports in the way that most of us were. Or, or they were police agitators whose job it was to try and turn every otherwise peaceful demonstration into something violent. We know so much more about these people yeah, now that they were possible. deeply embedded. And Because I remember in London last year, uh, at one point, some guy who was definitely trying to get us to be a lot more proactive. And somebody said, where's your buddy? And he looked a bit surprised. And then somebody else, one of the facilitators said, everyone who's got a buddy, sit down. And we all sat down around him. And it's really hard to rile people up when they're sitting down around you singing songs about loving the earth. Mm -hmm. And then we later saw him sitting on a on a wall chatting to the police um, in a way that we wouldn't have done. So so I think it is kind of interesting because I, but, and yet there is, it has always seemed to me when you get a certain energy of a particular group together, whatever the original focus of that group, it isn't hard to spark it into a high adrenaline where you're moving from fright and flight to fight. Um, I remember even being on Take Back the Night Marches in Cambridge back in the 80s and and being surrounded by women who in ones and twos were lovely and then they would start becoming aggressive. And and somewhere down about Parker's Peace, I'd think, I don't belong here anymore. This is this is not what I want. You know, we, we can take back the night without having to paint the walls red with everybody else's blood. This is not what, what we need to be doing. So so anyway, having done that and having found the boundaries of nonviolence within yourself and also presumably felt you'd achieved something because we don't do live calf exports anymore, do we? I think. That's right. Yeah. Well, there are still live exports, but not live calf exports in the same way. So we were able to check. We contributed to changing something and it's ongoing work and it's it's slow work. But yeah, everything we do, you know, we don't know what difference it'll make and when. We just do it trusting that it's contributing to a bigger shift, yes. I guess. Yes. Every little bit of action has some impact. I think that's really an important one. So let's have a look at that. Just briefly, I just before we get to there, I wanted to think that that was the days when the Sunday Times did genuinely radical stuff. <laughs> That's true. I think it must have been before Murdoch bought it. Can you imagine doing something like that now? It's it, That was, for its time, really quite edgy, I think, in terms of challenging the status quo. Yeah. I'm, I'm kind of impressed. I want to honour the Times as it was when it was the Thunderer way back. Um, so it seems to me, exactly as you said, more often than not, it's an accumulation of actions that create change. Very few actions in and of themselves create change overnight. Even the demonstration against the Iraq war, which had over a million people on the streets of London, didn't change that policy, but it has changed British foreign policy ever since. And 
I'm sure that the actions of Extinction Rebellion in the two years of its existence have massively altered the ways that the narrative of climate change is progressing through our culture. And so in terms of looking at the the wide range of what trembling warriors might be, each wanting to put their drip into the bucket as we try to fill it, could we have a look at all of the things we can do? Because we don't need to be marching on the streets and we certainly don't need to be gluing ourselves to, to bank windows. There's lots of different ways of being a trembling warrior depending on where your skill set is and and where your thresholds lie. Is that fair? Absolutely. And I think it comes back to the idea of what's just outside my comfort zone. And so for some people, something that's just outside their comfort zone might be having a conversation with their local retailer about whether they're stocking factory farmed meat, for example, or Mm. uh, any kind of unethical practice, whatever it is that uh, fires us up. And uh, for others, it might be going on a campaign or dangling from a crane. You know, so, uh, we all have not only different levels of comfort and different fear thresholds, but we all have different stuff that we're scared of. And so we can do activism without trembling at all. Uh, but when we're being the trembling warrior, it's all about taking ourselves slightly out of our comfort zone. So, for example, somebody who is naturally quite reclusive or hesitant about joining new groups, maybe a little bit shy, it might be about joining a local group. That might be a, a big thing to do. Uh, and yet having crossed that bridge and entered the group and been welcomed, then the, you know, the, the scariest bit sometimes is then crossed and people can work together and support yeah. one another. Yes, and and one of the things that really struck me reading the book was the essence of finding your tribe, that understanding that we're not in this alone, whatever this is, and and the joy of the internet these days, it's it's not hard to find other people who share your own values. And if you can find them such that you can work together, then I think there's a tremendous healing in the sharing of the activism and the sharing of our vulnerability and and how we are afraid i think that wasn't a question um it was it was a statement so in our broad range you have 12 different trembling warrior archetypes if you like in the book and i don't want to list them all because i do want people to to go and read the book but i'm wondering if we could maybe take take the extremes what would you say was the least of the least warrior-like of the group. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, the least is uh, when we talk about self-doubt or the hedge dweller, perhaps. Yes. The, the least warrior-like. Yeah, and, and fight or flight. So both of them, self-doubt and fear, uh, one chapter follows the other. So self-doubt is uh, when we begin to question ourselves, when we're easily dissuaded from our own personal beliefs or knocked off course by other people's opinions or criticism, mm. And uh, how, and so the book then goes on to explore how can we stand strong in our own principles and remain open to other people's views and opinions and prepared to shift, but also really clear about what is our own authentic truth. So self-doubt is one, but then was to step up from that is actual fear, whether it's fear of uh, dangling from cranes uh, or being arrested, or whether it's fear of rejection or ridicule or conflict or dismissal uh, and a fearfulness for trembling warriors 
yeah, would be the fearfulness that's the the beating heart or the lurching stomach or the the feeling sick. You know, our body tells us when we're fearful of something. And uh, and of course, we don't have to, as we've said, take ourselves into a, a panic zone to do activism. We can take ourselves uh, just slightly out of our comfort zone into uh, into a stretch zone and work there and usually grow through doing that as well in ways that can be rewarding and unexpected. So that's the, the least, if you like, or the uh, the most trembling. <laughs> and at the, at the other end of the spectrum, the, the, the most warrior and the least trembling, if you like, would probably be, oh, which to choose? Let's have two, maverick and fire. So maverick mm. being the quality which subverts the dominant paradigm is uh, countercurrent uh, and doesn't care, is actually fine uh, most of the time with being seen as different or unusual or coming out with strange things. And this maverick quality is a fantastic disruptor. It has the ability to drop unexpected, seemingly upside down con concepts into a conversation and shift a whole perception. Uh, has uh, Because they're not worried about the person, the, the views of the person they're talking to, and they're not worried about creating an edge space between them. Yeah, possibly, or don't even aren't even aware that they're doing it sometimes. So the maverick <laughs> just has this lovely. It's almost like the quality of the archetypal fool uh, who is willing to step in uh, and bring some bring something different to turn everything upside down. It's a kind of fool stroke trickster, if you like, in terms of archetypes. Right. Right. And my understanding, I'm thinking that you would be thinking perhaps of Roger Hallam, who was one of the co-founders of Extinction Rebellion, who seems to me to be one of the trickster archetypes in life. And I I wonder, he seems to me utterly fearless. I see no trembling at all, but he must have vulnerabilities in places where he does feel afraid. Oh, sure. We all do. Uh, and the and the maverick will do too, but uh, and I I don't want to generalise too much around this because obviously we're all different and we're all unique and we all have our different mm. fears and trigger points. Uh, and mavericks will have their own as well. But the, uh, the whatever the mavericks don't fear, it means that they're able to just very naturally and not self consciously just present themselves as different. And show up as and make suggestions as and act and speak uh, countercurrent. And that potentially takes some courage. Uh, but often for Mavericks, it's just that they, they can't. And I, I've experienced this, this too. I can't help it. I don't make a decision to uh, do something that's countercurrent necessarily. It just emerges from my quite different way of being sometimes. And uh, I'm, surp right. I'm surprised when people are surprised. <laughs> Yes. And I remember in our previous conversation uh, the, that hasn't been recorded, you saying that when you sat in the street and were arrested, that facing a column of yellow clad police officers was not frightening, um, which left me, I have to say, quite a lot in awe because I found that utterly terrifying. <laughs> I, I realise I'm quite a law-abiding little girl at heart, really. Um, but then you said that you found that coming back and finding that your tribe had gone, I think, was was far more unsettling for you as you came back after having been arrested and processed and, and held in a cell. Is that right? Yeah, exactly that. I was okay with, I was surrounded by my tribe and that I think gives us a lot of courage, you know, as I think any animal will do a lot more and have the courage, you know, how horses will jump a big fence with other horses that they wouldn't dream of doing on their own. So there's something about mm. that being carried along by the tribe and being arrested was... Uh, 
yeah, with, was from within my tribe and everybody's cheering everybody and supporting and holding everybody. It's an extremely affirming experience. And um, yeah, being carried up for me personally, being carried away, taken to prison uh, or, or to the uh, police cells and held for 24 hours, there was nothing in that that actually frightened me. I deeply disliked having my DNA taken, the swab, because for me, uh, there's something sacred about our DNA. You know, it's, uh, it's our ancestry. There's something sacred about that. But mm. it wasn't frightening. Uh, and when I was released, a lot of us came out at the same time and everybody was welcoming everybody else. And again, that was all uh, very affirming. And and uh, and I know that not everybody has this experience of being handled by the police. You know, there are um, communities yes. who, who experience, for example, institutional racism. And, you know, whilst that's true, I think all of us agreed that our experience had been, was okay. It wasn't dreadful it wasn't scary it was if anything boring and mundane and tedious at times but not frightening whereas after I'd come out and then we'd all dispersed and I went back to have a bit of a sleep where I was staying and then I went back to the bridge and I couldn't find anybody I knew (laughs) and then unlike anything from the previous 24 hours I suddenly had this I don't quite know what to do and uh, I looked around the bridge and looked for familiar faces and couldn't find any. And this took me back. When we recorded the uh, Hearing Our Calling podcast, I was speaking about how when I was very small, I didn't meet other kids until I was nearly five. And so, you know, having a clear memory of going to my first small children's party and just not knowing what to do or how to approach people, all of that comes back. You know, all of the childhood fears that we have laid down when we're very small, uh, they sit there. You know, it's something that I'm aware of and I've worked with over the years, but uh, I know it's still a trigger point for me. And so, yes, when I came back onto the bridge, couldn't find anyone. I put, and I thought, okay, so I grounded myself and thought, I feel like running away here, uh, but I'm not going to. I'm, I'm going to approach people and just talk to them and just find my way back in. So, oh, well done. Well, I approached three or four people and um, couldn't really find that point of entry. People were busy doing stuff or they were all kind of hanging out together. And uh, I was already telling myself a story that I'm four and a half again and that nobody wants to play with me. So, um, so and then, you know, after the 24 hours of being arrested, not a problem, you know, whole thing, I'm standing on the bridge. I don't have any friends and suddenly I've got tears in my eyes. And, uh, and I, did le- I did leave. I did go and didn't come back the following day. Gosh, that's heartrending. <laughs> We're meant to be encouraging people that it's wonderful to be a trembling warrior and that's just so painful. Oh, and you know, it wasn't, and everybody on the bridge was being absolutely wonderful and it was all, so it's a very personal thing and you know, we all have yeah. our trigger points and we all have these, So, and I think for me, this is the heart of writing about and encouraging trembling warriors. It's about knowing what our own trigger points are um, yeah. recognizing that they're real and that we have them for a reason. They've come from somewhere and then resourcing and supporting ourselves in dealing with them. Yes. For me, that's okay that that happened. Uh, I went away, I resourced myself, got in touch with my buddies, came back and carried on. Uh, and that's the thing is to be able to be knocked off course around our own personal trigger points and to go, okay, I know this one, you know, this is familiar and I just need to get myself back from here into a place of being resourced and and ready to step back in again. So, yeah, so while these things might be uncomfortable to talk, and and also it gave me something to talk about here, (laughs) because these things might be uncomfortable to talk about,
about and maybe uncomfortable to listen to, but you know they're very real. And I think if we're yeah. if we're to bring back in the sensitivity, the gentleness, that kind of other deeper, more reflective wisdom into activism and into the public discourse, these are conversations that uh, are really important to have and things that are really important to acknowledge and recognise and say, yeah, and we can and we can work with them. Yes, and that will fit so well with last week's podcast with Eva and Justin, exactly about bringing empathy and compassion and that capacity for reflexivity, for looking in and seeing our own process happen mm. as it's happening mm-hmm. and react to it, mm-hmm. is how we're going to change the world. It is probably a key step to conscious evolution if we're going to take ourselves back to the the ground line of accidental gods that we need to be able to have yeah. done the work. Yeah. To, to see our own process. And that brings us also very neatly, thank you, well done, good segue, <laughs> to the section of the book that talks about resourcing ourselves and gathering resilience. Because I think that has always struck me with any activist group. Burning out is seems to be part of the process at Transition Towns or any of the climate activist groups I've been part of around where we are now or where I used to live. It's always the same people whose predisposition is to to do stuff and make stuff happen and to try and change the world by going out into the streets or whatever. And yet they hit a threshold of burnout. And as I understand from the book, you you did hit a threshold of burnout in a slightly different context when you were standing for Parliament. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, for sure. It was a slightly different context, and yet I consider that also to be activism, you know, in politics, when we're taking ourselves out of our comfort zone and stepping into something that asks some courage of us to change change the world, you know, whether it's standing for Parliament or knocking on people's doors with taking leaflets around, you know, it's, a, mm. it's all a challenge. It's all a challenge that stretches us. So standing for Parliament meant that I was pretty much running and embodying a high-profile campaign in the Totnes constituency for about five months. Mm. Now, what was great was that I didn't get the abuse, the level of abuse that you might expect the Green Party to come up in for. Mm. And, and I imagined in Totnes constituency that uh, we might come under some attack from the national press, but we didn't. Okay. Uh, and women often get a hard time as well, of course, in politics. And I didn't really have any of that, or very, very little of it. And what there was, you know, I'm fine with people I don't know attacking me. Um, when it, when people I know, you know, challenge or attack me, then that might feel slightly different. But uh, I can kind of let it bounce off. But for me personally, and this might be different for other people with different sensitive areas, I'm quite the reclusive normally. I need time to reflect and digest and I need downtime, time away from people, you know, a classic introvert, if you like. So doing this high profile campaign, which was high energy and somehow you become public property. Right. So I was out there day after day interacting, uh, engaging uh, and operating at this energetic level that was um hmm yeah I can't describe there's something about being in the public domain that isn't just that is also energetic uh and I could sustain yeah. that I sustained it for 5 months with some wonderful support and then five months, yeah. <laughs> my God, with a little bit of downtime. But nevertheless, I've, a bit like the seven bore wave, I felt carried in a most extraordinary way, having committed to this piece of work at quite a, what I would call a sacred or a spiritual level before beginning it. 
uh, I felt carried by community, by uh, the local members of the local party, um, particularly by friends uh, through this whole process. But mm. then when it got to the end, after the count, I remember when uh, the Conservative MP had been announced as uh, the returning member of parliament. Now, I was just about to tell a story, but it's quite undignified, so I'm not going to. <laughs> oh, no. Yes, you okay, must. Okay, well, just a little. It's not too undignified. So she came round. She, we hadn't really spoken much throughout the campaign. And she came round to the table where me and my little, little gang were gathered. Uh, and she sat on the corner of the table and it collapsed. <laughs> and um yeah because she was obviously quite triumphant and she'd come round probably you know in a very well meaning way i think i think there are yeah anyway without going too much into <laughs> her character and her politics i think at some level she she was well intended in that but she sat on the table and mm. the table collapsed and that was i just couldn't help bursting out laughing because after a very tense night <laughs> And yes. then um, the uh, Labour candidate came across and she was very lovely and said, look, this might happen, you know, at the end of a long and intense campaign, people do sometimes take a bit of a nosedive. And I did. Uh, I went into mm. what was probably two months looking back as not diagnosed, but what was probably clinical depression of spending a lot of time in bed. And uh, I think I've described it before as when people have damaged a limb and they ask the limb to move, you know, they might ask their leg to move and it doesn't respond. Right. I was asking my soul to move or my energy or my social engagement to move and it just wouldn't respond. It's as if there was nothing there. Right. Your social engagement. I love the idea that you could ask your social engagement to move. <laughs> and it wouldn't, not for oh, two months. It doesn't. No, no, that's scary. So what did you do even for people who haven't spent five months on the campaign trail, which I, the stamina that that would require just leaves me breathless. But anyway, people who are feeling that they're heading towards burnout or recognising that they've hit it, what are the key steps to resourcing that you found worked for you? What worked for me was, well, one of the things that worked for me was to just to go with it, to recognise, as I think I wouldn't have done uh, in my younger days, what was actually happening. So having read and felt yeah. resourced around that, I thought, okay, so I, kn I know what's going on here. And my, my body and soul are just saying, you need some downtime. You need to shrink in and just stay small and low for a while. So I honoured that and I did. I didn't try and push myself into anything that felt unnatural or uncomfortable. Uh, it didn't feel like a time for pushing myself. I've been doing that for quite some time. And uh, I spent quite a lot of time dipping back into one of my favourite books, which is Thomas More's Dark Nights of the Soul. Hmm, yes. And he writes beautifully about how can we, we can resource ourselves in such times. Because in a way, in those times, we're invited to just collapse and let go of everything. And while that can feel frightening, what it also enables in a very beautiful way is a reassembling. Uh, and so we grow back, we can grow back potentially stronger, more resourced and come out of the other side of these times with unexpected gifts. So that was one thing, was just to rest and relax into yeah. the process. Okay. And then I took some advice from my friend Kathy, who... Uh, when I was after a couple of weeks of this, I said, I think I need to get my teeth into another project. And she said to me, hmm. Jill, she's Canadian. I don't think <laughs> I can do her accent, but she just said, Jill, no, you don't. don't. <laughs> you need to just do delightful things for a while. 
Right. And what was delightful? What did you find delightful to do? Oh, walking by the coast uh, without guilt tripping myself that I was taking a lot of downtime, uh, lying in the garden in the sunshine, just watching the insects and the birds in the garden, just watching very slow processes in nature, Uh, walking by the ocean and walking in forests and spending time with a very small group of very trusted close friends. Not much time, but just enough. And people who knew what was happening for you. So they were being gentle yeah, with you yeah. and, and honouring your process, yeah, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. This, yeah. And really just being a little bit ruthless about not getting called into or engaged in some of the other things that people were asking me. You know, post-parliamentary campaign, people want you yeah. to do stuff and uh, being yes. very, very selective and quite ruthless about what I said yes to. Oh, you're very good with boundaries. I'm most impressed. I'm also really impressed. Two things struck me there. First is that it was the connection with the natural world as well as a small group of trusted friends that seemed to make a big difference. And I also, what struck me is that at the times when I have felt that life really wasn't worth living, I have pretty much the defining feature of that is that I cannot find joy in anything. Mm. But possibly that's maybe burnout and annihilating depression are different things, but it sounded like you were you were pretty close. Um, but you managed perhaps because you have a lot of reflexivity and and self-awareness to be able to slow down and perhaps coach yourself into taking joy in those things to begin with, do you think? Well, at times. Do you need to kind of go, okay, I love oceans. Yeah. Let's go and stand by the ocean. Yeah, at times. Um, to coach myself and to, to take myself there, almost to uh, urge myself to just go and engage. So I know the things that nourish and replenish me. Uh, and even if I did, really didn't feel like doing it, I would take myself there anyway. And sometimes I'd just come trudging home again, you know, but nevertheless, it felt important to, to continue to do that. And so I would move in and out of, um, if you've been depressed for any length of time, you know, you may know this, that uh, you kind of move in and out of, you know, it comes in waves and some days will be really just, I just don't even want to get out of bed days and other days will be, well, I feel a little bit more energized today and I think maybe I have enough energy to engage in this thing or that thing. And uh, and gradually being able to introduce more soul practices, as I call them, so that's whether it's being in nature or meditating or yoga or some creative mm. act, you know, this is different for everybody, but uh, soul practices that reconnect me with my kind of fundamental sense sense of being. But I think overriding, as I'm thinking about this and talking about it, overriding it is a sense of really, yeah, as you say, being familiar with my own and trusting my own process. It's like, no, today isn't a day yeah. to do stuff and that's okay. And today is a day where I'm actually feeling really energetic and I'm only going to accept that invitation to give a talk and going, right, okay, if I'm feeling that that's okay, I'll do it. <laughs> and was that wise? Yeah. Did you yeah, enjoy Yes, it did. Yes, yes, I did, okay. actually. Yeah, I did a talk for Jellyfish in um, Buckfastly, a little village. Jellyfish is a lovely little enterprise which asks people to come and talk about stuff so uh, I went yeah, went nice. and did that and it was okay. great and that was enough probably for another couple of weeks or something so it's the long haul and recognizing the ups and downs in that and the ins and outs and just sort of staying with them trusting the process and knowing that there will be uh, an emergence on the other side. Okay brilliant and one of the things that I found talking to somebody local who's worked a lot in renewable energy processes um, and two things came up for us. One was that people who are working towards climate justice, social justice, racial justice, gender justice, 
the whole sense of equity, mm. have a tendency to feel consistently under threat. We are in mild flight or fright, in sympathetic overload most of the time, which is not not healthy in and of itself. And that there is never going to be an end to this. It's not that, for instance, we stop the calves being exported and therefore the world is wonderful. Mm. We stop the calves being exported and next we have to stop the live horses and the sheep and the cows. In fact, we have to stop live exports and then we have to stop the whole of the entire industrial agriculture system. And then we have to look at the systemic causes from which it arose. And I think particularly in the area of the climate and ecological emergency, this is it for our lives. And therefore, planning such that we don't constantly feel we're running up Everest is quite important. Giving ourselves downtime before we burn Mm -hmm. out Mm -hmm. is probably Mm -hmm. quite useful. Can't do that, I'm sure, in an election situation. But the rest of the time, we can plan to take breaks and plan for things that will nourish us during those breaks. And as you said, what nourishes each person is different. Yeah. And I know I know a lot of activists who would find that concept incredibly challenging uh, to plan ahead and to build in breaks and downtime. <laughs> Not just activists, but actually I'm thinking about people in workplaces, organizations I've worked with. Yes. There's something about being human that makes it quite difficult for us sometimes to anticipate and to act now uh, thinking of the future. We're quite a reactive species and often don't uh, do what we need to do until the alarm's been raised. You know, I saw something today that said one of the American presidents has said, "Well, I'll act on climate change when there are signs of climate change," which, of course, is exactly the that, that would be Trump. I, actually, it wasn't. It was somebody <laughs> a few presidents ago, and I don't remember who was it? it was. But oh, okay. it's just the same concept as saying. I'll act on burnout when there are signs of burnout. By then it's too late. (laughs) And I know many, many activists who feel that, who are really committed. And this is the other, you know, we talked about maverick, but the other quality is fire. These are the the Mm. activists, the trembling warriors who are, who have uh, fire that they can unleash and boundless fire that they want to take forward into the world and make a difference and speak truth to power and, and get do, give their everything to it. And I see people doing this day after day after day and, and mm-hmm. then collapsing in a heap, you know, much in the same way that I did. But yeah, you're right. During a parliamentary campaign, there isn't much opportunity for downtime, though I did find some. But activists can do this. They can step back and let others step forward for a while. Uh, Many of us feel that, you know, we have to be on everything. We have to sign every petition. We have to go to every meeting. We have to attend every, take part in every action in order to be an activist. And, uh, you know, of course we don't, you know, it's, uh, in fact, it's far healthier for us and for the whole movement that we step in when we feel that we're resourced. And, you know, maybe it takes a bit of a stretch, but when we're, almost sufficiently resourced and, and ready and then know when to step out as well. So it's more like a, a tidal rhythm of managing our energy, yes. like an ebb and a flow and going with that rhythm rather than pushing ourselves and forcing ourselves to keep going when our bodies or our souls are just screaming no to us. It's, uh, yes. it's uh, yeah, a key part of knowing our own process and knowing how to just check in and uh, be still for a while and recognize What phase are we in of that ebb and flow? What do we need to be doing right now? That's beautiful. I love that, the ebb and the flow metaphor. And it's bringing up for me something that Eva and Justin said last Mm. week, partly because I just finished doing the transcript Mm. of that before we recorded. Um, Along the lines of learning to come to a situation as people, not as the role 
that we identify with. So, so not coming, say, as the chief operating officer of a company, but coming as a human being. And in activist circles, coming as a human being, not even with the label activist or leader of a movement, or I'm the one who always does, I don't know, the leafleting, or I'm the one who who's going to be the Red Rebel this week, because you know that's a whole subset of the Extinction Rebellion, and just coming as a person and seeing what arises. And then the entire group having the emotional literacy to accept that someone who took a role last week and the week before does not necessarily have to take that role this week. And I think that's one of the conversations that tends not to happen, certainly in the groups that I've been in, just because everybody's feeling slightly harassed. Everyone's somewhat too busy. There is an end point of of this bit of action that we're all aiming towards, after which there will be another and another and another. And it's hard when people, they, f- they feel and we feel as if they're somehow reneging on a contract yeah. when they're not. There was yeah. no contract. And yeah. it should be fine yeah. for everyone to be themselves yes. and to go, you know, I'm just burning out a bit and therefore, you know, I'm going to man the phones this week because that's that's still useful and it's something that I can do. Mm, exactly that. And I think in, in some areas of Extinction Rebellion, that's held really well. Um, and in others, less right. so. And Good. not through intention. Uh, but I think there are different types of warrior. You know, we have the warriors who you know, going into the, all the emotional, as I've heard one friend say, I don't want to do all the emotional stuff. I just want to be practically people. Hmm. You know, I don't want to look at all that stuff. And so how yes. do we navigate? How do we navigate the needs and actually are able, you know, be able to have those conversations to make sure that everyone can engage in their own, at their own energetic level and, and get the emotional support they need, whether they recognize it or not sometimes. Yeah. And this is where I think the trembling war, the notion of the trembling warrior and the trembling warrior voice and presence in activism is really important and really vital at the moment. Uh, Activism has traditionally been about the fire and the fury, uh, the passion and the dedicatedness and the real kind of narrow focus. And in a way, it balances with the dominant paradigm that we see in the world of politics and industry, where there's an emphasis on being definite, on being loud, on being fast, on being clear and not doing the emotional stuff. And so it feels to me that in both in business and politics, industry and in activism, it's probably time, it's probably more than time for that more gentle, reflective wisdom to be able to have a seat at the table, to be able to be involved in decisions and to to bring that attention to relationship, emotion, soul, you know, all the things that can get pushed out in the the frenzy of uh, practical action. So it's uh, almost returning to old ways of counsel where the wise sage or the visionary or the healer would have a place at the table, an equal place at the table with the others, with the warrior and the other, you know, all the others of the community and all would hear each other and respect each other's wisdom equally. So very many aspects, you know, tender, reflective aspects. And you could call it the feminine maybe uh, have been dismissed and pushed out. And um, for me, activism at the moment, a huge part of what's happening in the world is about reintegrating or welcoming back in that more sensitive and gentle and slow and reflective wisdom. You know, we're missing it and that's, that's why we're where we are. Yes. 
Definitely. However we label it, I, I get very twitchy around gender uh-huh. labelling of that, but but you're right. Sorry, anyway. I'm just, yeah, so it's a, the, the feminine rather than females or women. Yes. I want to be so, yes, however, we, whatever we yes. might call it, yeah, all those other adjectives. Or heart mind rather than okay, head lovely. mind, I think, yeah. for me, it, mm-hmm. because, because it's our, particularly our culture's tendency for head mind to dominate everything uh-huh. and for that to be our measure of success is how fast we think, how how we can think our way out of problems instead mm-hmm. of allowing ourselves to sink mm-hmm. into our feeling selves and, and identify the huge discomfort mm-hmm. that may be underlying the thinking process. Mm-hmm. So as two things, so you mentioned quite a while ago as we were talking about burning out and your process of kind of going inside and then moving out, that you might emerge from the the very still place of what we're loosely calling burnout with unexpected gifts. And I was just curious to know if that was a personal experience that you had come out with unexpected gifts or whether that was a concept for you. Oh, it's a real thing. And it's the thing I see with clients as well. Uh, that okay. uh, Passing through these times, if we do it mindfully, accompanied in some way, either by literature or a trusted friend, you know, if we have some kind of thread to the overworld uh, that we do, um, it's not guaranteed, uh, but very often emerge with gifts. And they might be immediately apparent, you know, we might emerge and think, ah, I'm liberated from this old self-limiting belief, or ah, I've Mm. grown and and stretched and done things that I didn't realize I could do. I see that now, you know, I'm ready for my next challenge. Or we might not get it immediately, but we might look back and think, oh, and now I see that this whole piece of work or this whole new uh, perspective or approach or creativity uh, was probably being composted, uh, being nourished in the soul while I was in that dark place and I just didn't know it at the time. So, yeah. Beautiful. Yes, because because everything is a spiral and with any luck at all, exactly that out of the, out of the stillness. And the the winter mm. arises a spring that that has new yeah, growth. Yeah, lovely. Yeah, exactly. Beautiful. Yeah. So, I'm we're heading towards the end of our time, and I'm thinking that what I'd like to do is offer people listening who, if they are listening, have care for the trajectory of humanity and the planet together, and maybe looking for ways that they can begin to access their own inner trembling warrior and things that they can do that are perhaps not marching in the streets and handing out leaflets or whatever. I don't know why I pick those as my two. It's probably because I've done both of those and they're both quite scary. Um, and they take a lot of time <laughs> and and a lot of energy. And, and when one is feeling energyless, they're quite daunting. Uh-huh. But one of the things that struck me recently was the conversation I had with Josessa Kimber about the earth protection communities and the concept of signing the earth protector pledge, mm. which is a very straightforward pledge that then has does have legal weight. Mm. And then of persuading, let's say, for instance, your children's school, all the pupils could sign it, all the teachers could sign it. Mm. And then the teachers... And the school, the school becomes an earth protector school. And and in the UK, I gather it is now illegal for teachers to teach anything that is suggesting that there might be a good alternative to capitalism or that uh, white privilege is a thing. These are all illegal. However, it is not yet illegal to suggest that taking care of the earth is a good thing. Mm. 
So this is something that that whole communities can do. We can get our parish councils to sign the Earth Protector Pledge and then the town councils and then the county councils. And then having signed it, it gives everybody a baseline from which to work. So it struck me that that was one of the ways in that people who want to do something and are struggling to know what to do, mm. that's a straightforward one. You go to earthprotectorcommunities.net, you download the Earth Protector Pledge. I think you pay one one input of, a, I think, around £5. I'm not sure exactly. And and that's you. You're an Earth Protector. And then you can talk to other people about it because I think often each of us is the pebble dropped in the still pool and we don't know how far out the ripples will go. But if we just talk to random strangers in the street, you know, the people we meet in the supermarket queue about this thing that we're doing. Mm. I just talked to my, I went to a sports physio, I was trying to put my back together and we ended up talking about this and she went, oh yeah, I, I could be a part-time activist. I've, you know, she's got, a, she's a single mother with a young son, but she's really keen and is WhatsApping all of her friends about this. And, and that particular pebble dropped completely at random in a still pool has generated a huge amount of interest. Um, and so I'm wondering if you have other thoughts of things that people can do that are that feel doable for the average person in the average life and yet will have impact. Oh, there are so many. Um, I, and we, are, <laughs> we have choices every day. So they start with, for example, just asking questions uh, about the food or the stuff that we're buying in shops. When we actually ask questions, right. retailers and caterers get to know that people actually care rather than the, the usual, oh, it's a bit rude to ask whether this chicken's free range or whether this other thing has been ethically sourced. Uh, and that might feel quite scary for some people. I don't know. Uh, so and one a little bit like uh, the Earth Protectors, something else we can join and sign up to is a group I've come across recently called More in Common. Okay. And they're looking yes. to bridge that yes. wonderful gap, you know, between the schisms and the political divides and the uh, the polarization that we're seeing at the moment. More in Common are looking to set up conversations and uh, uh, studying how divisions happen and to, and to draw people together. So that's uh, you know, joining uh, more in common is another lovely way that people might get involved. Uh, something okay. I've been doing recently, which is fairly low key. I rather resent uh, when I'm on Twitter getting adverts for things that uh, I don't necessarily want or, well, that I don't want. And yet, so my creative response to getting ads on my Twitter feed is to think, okay, so here's somebody advertising a plastic fish as a toy. So I'm just going to go into the comments and suggest that if we really love the oceans and really love fish, we probably don't want to be buying plastic fish. We want to be taking our kids diving or at least pond dipping hmm. or something. So it's the um, one of the things I talk about in the book is uh, culture jamming, which is just a very gentle way of, as you've said so beautifully, dropping a pebble into something that's established. So where people are having conversations about plastic fish, just just dropping something else in. Uh, and for me, that feels like a creative response Brilliant. to to advertising that I don't want. So yeah, there are so many That's ways. That's gorgeous. Yes, and and I remember from the book you mentioned um, the Led by Donkeys group who do the extraordinary culture jamming work in Britain, and I'm sure there are similar groups in other countries. Yeah, and there's yeah. So things like flash mobs, you know, kind of going along and taking part in a flash mob thing where you can be quite anonymous 
and it's quite an exciting thing for introverts to do because um, I know we're not solely talking about introverts, but anybody who feels like they might not want to do something public, just to leap up and uh, do something, take part in some action, which um, is seen in a shopping terrifying to <laughs> And then to, to, to <laughs> do it I'm anonymously sure or in some kind of disguise, you yeah, know, because a lot okay. of them do that. Uh, it can yeah. also be a lot of fun. Culture jamming can be, and uh, using art as a form of activism and, you know, like Banksy stuff only, um, you know, obviously not Banksy, but doing similar stuff to him. There are loads of ways in which artists and writers uh, can shift the discourse in a way that's beautiful and creative and peaceful yes. and doesn't involve any conflict or fear at all. Uh, and uh, yes. art shapes the world arguably as much or more than politics. Yes, poems on the underground, mm. they're amazing. Mm. Yes, and even if you aren't feeling poetic, you can f help to fund the people who are doing these Great. things, so more yeah. in common. Or yeah. Um, led by donkeys. Oh, yeah, or, that reminds me of another thing. Things. So um, supporting subversive journalism is at the moment, of course, oh, the yes. media is dominated by uh, wealthy billionaires and in, in cahoots with the government. But there are, for example, Byline Times and Double Down News, yes. who at the moment are publishing loads of stuff that wouldn't normally be seen otherwise. And that's where the, it seems yes. to me that the courageous journalism is going. And of course, they need funding. So if you want to uh, don't feel like you can have a voice yourself or a way of bringing it forward. Uh, if you want to support funding Double Down News or the Byline Times, that's a way of supporting the truth in getting out there. Or if you're on the left and consider yourself a libertarian green eco-socialist, um, Novara Media is also rather okay. good. I will put um, links to all of these in the show notes, mm. definitely. And and more in common is is lovely. I like it a lot because I believe the phrase came from Joe Cox, who was the Labour MP who was murdered by the far-right activist, ah. who said in her maiden speech in the House of Commons, we have more in common than that which divides us, which I thought was beautiful. But there's also um, a group called The Alternative, which are in the UK and in Denmark, mm. endeavouring to create alternatives to political parties. Mm. Um, and Compass also is endeavouring to bridge various of the gaps. So there's quite a lot that I know of in the UK, and I'm sure there are similar things all around the world where there are really very thoughtful, intelligent people endeavouring to change the way that the system works. I think we need a whole new system. Indeed. But in the meantime, you know, we will probably won't get to that unless we change the way the existing system works. Mm. Uh -huh. and, and there are ways, that, so for example, George Monbiot has just published a wonderful thing about PPE and the dodgy government contracts yes. recently. Hasn't he just? Hasn't he just? And um, yes. my thought, I read this and thought, yeah, this is powerful, this is angry, this is wonderful and it's true. Yes. And yet, it's by George Monbiot, it's in The Guardian. It's like, how many people, who is actually going to see this? Probably not. Yeah. Uh, the, yeah, and, and it, it's in the echo chamber of the people exactly. who read the Guardian on Twitter, yeah. and it exactly. Doesn't move so my suggestion on Twitter yes. was that supposing we all, you know, this is uh, one example and one suggestion, but supposing we all uh, took this article or some found this uh, something like it and emailed it, not in the social media bubble, but emailed it to one of the beloved Tories in our lives, you know, our families or <laughs> or our friends who we may still have uh, or we may have. Uh, connections with Tory voters, uh, people who just don't know about this stuff. You know, I've spoken with people who just had no idea about these contracts. Uh, and so that's, yeah, just another way of yes. doing activism. I, I think 
probably talking to them rather than handing them something printed from the Guardian or sending on email <laughs> because right. my experience is that they would respond to that much the way I respond to them when they send me something from Breitbart, <laughs> which is my eyes are going to fall out of my head before I can read this. Yeah. I'm really sorry. Yeah, <laughs> Give me a yeah. pricey. And already I know it's wrong because it came from Breitbart, yeah. which is really bad and totally against everything that Schmachtenberger talks about with sense making. So I do need a lot more work on that. But it's going to be a while before I could read something from Breitbart without feeling that my eyes were going to roll out of my head. And I do have the, the kind of alt-right members of our family who I I believe feel exactly the same about The Guardian. Yeah, I'm but sure you're right. And, and I will put the link to that on the show notes because he starts off with, if you are not incandescent with rage, you don't understand what's been happening exactly. to us. Exactly. Yeah, it's just yeah, brilliant, exactly that. brilliant article. Yeah. So that, and that's a whole um, other form of activism, of course, you know, having these conversations, having the conversations with the people yes. who uh, just don't get to see this information, who haven't yet realised what's going on yes. and aren't yet incandescent with rage. And finding the common ground so that we're not lecturing them that we're right and they're mm. wrong, that we're finding mm. the places, what do we all care about yeah. and and how can we make it better rather than you expletive deleted, voted the wrong lot in and we just need to write vote the right yeah, button and everything exactly that's the energy we don't need a, we need a non-violent way of communicating which starts from and a suggestion I make in the book is starting with uh, talking about well what what am I scared of you know what what broke my heart what keeps yes. me awake at nights and yes yes because shared humanity is what is going to get us through everything that's coming down the uh -huh. line so I think that's quite a good place to finish. Did you have anything else that you wanted to say other than we should go and read your book? <laughs> I don't think I do, Manda. Thank you. I've really enjoyed uh, talking with you as always today and uh, sparked loads of new stuff for me as well. Fantastic. Excellent. Thank you very much, Jill Coombs, for coming back onto Accidental Gods. It's a pleasure. So that's it for another week. Huge thanks to Jill for being a warrior and for exploring the ways that we can all connect with our tribes, the ways we can find our own authentic voice in the world, and most importantly, find our own resources and paths to resilience. If this is a concept that speaks to you, and if you're listening on the day that we transmit, which is 28th of October, I am teaching an online course at Embercombe, which we'll be exploring something along these lines. It's looking at our inner warrior and inner dreamer, those two archetypes, and how we might find the balance between them, which is not the same as finding our own activist and activism and working out how to express that in the world, but it lives in the same kind of environment. So if you're interested, I will leave a link in the show notes or just go to Embercombe's website. Look for Dreaming the Wildfire and click the link to join. It'll be from 10 o'clock till 4 o'clock UK time, which is now GMT. And if you're listening after that, and it feels like something you'd like to do, then get in touch because we can hold more than one of these. Online courses can happen pretty much any time. It's not like we're booking a venue. And in the meantime, thanks as always to Caro C for being the world's best sound engineer and for creating the music at the head and foot of the podcast. Thanks to Faith Tillery for being the world's best website designer and for being the other half of the creative team that is Accidental Gods. If you want to come to the website, 
we're at accidentalgods.life, and you'll find the show notes there, all the other podcasts, and the visualizations and meditations in the resources section. You will also have access to the Accidental Gods membership program, which is a structured training designed to give everyone the ways to connect with the web of life that can yield questions and answers that have authenticity and grounding and integrity, because for me that is a key aspect of our route to conscious evolution. So if you know of anyone who wants to find their inner trembling warrior, who wants to be active in creating a world that is more generative for all of us, for the human and the more than human worlds, then please do send them this link. And in the meantime, that is it for now. See you next week. Thank you and goodbye.